Hey, Moo Frere. Want to know more about vein disease but not be bored to death? Well, you've come to the right place. Join us as we talk about all kinds of things, including vascular disease, advice, comedy, and of course, business growth. I'm your host, Brian Sapp. Hey, Moo Frere. This is Brian Sapp from the Hey Moo Frere podcast. This episode is brought to you by Doc to Doc Lending. Doc to Doc Lending provides personal loans to physicians and dentists at rates that make sense. Apply in under five minutes at doctodoclending.com. Good evening. Welcome to the Hey Move Fair podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sapp. Today I have a healthcare executive, Tom Murphy. He's a long, lifelong medical sales executive with extensive experience in the heart and vascular space. He is currently a sales district sales manager for an AI-based structural heart sales for HeartFlow FFRCT. Tom has won awards for outstanding achievement through his career. However, today's episode, we're going to discuss the detection of suspected coronary artery disease, something that is very personal to Tom. Good afternoon, Tom. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Brian. Thanks so much for having me on today. Doing great. So to my guest, you know, all these words are big words let's I'm gonna let you introduce kind of what you do and uh, and kind of give a, a basic overview and then we're gonna dive a little deeper. Great. Well, Brian, as you mentioned, you know, I've had a long career in the medical device arena. I've been I'm fortunate to be on some of the cutting edge technology. You know, I was in the sales role when the minimally invasive laparoscopic surgery started with us surgical. I was, in the very early days of the interventional cardiology world, pre-stents when, you know, so that's going back a long time when we just used perfusion balloons to tack up dissections. And I've certainly seen a rapid evolution of technology and benefit to patients in that space. I've had an opportunity to be involved in the peripheral procedures with with a couple of companies that came forward to the market with atherectomy technologies, one being the Silverhawk and the other one being the Jetstream. Both of those are with big strategic companies now. And I also had an opportunity to be with Shockwave launching intravascular lithotripsy, which is really uh, running rapidly through the healthcare system now is the benefits of being able to disrupt calcium and get better apposition of stents in that very difficult patient cohort of patients. So, you know, I've, I've been across a wide spectrum. I've always kind of take it for granted when I'm in there supporting the cases, I never really envisioned myself being one of those patients because I thought I was, you know, didn't have any risk factors and was living a healthy lifestyle. And, you know, this was really for somebody other than me. But what I have found is, I am now 63 years old. I recently went in, as I do um, at least every other year, to see my cardiologist. I went in for my annual checkup, and they usually put the 12 lead EKGs on. They'll have me do an exercise treadmill. You know, some of those type of things have taken place in the past. This year, with the COVID environment, we were going to do a calcium score instead. And I had started, um, you know, postponing that. And during that period of time, I had a little bit of a diminished exercise capacity and shortness of breath when I'd be playing pickleball or doing the walks that I do in uh, the hilly areas around our house. And I found myself kind of cutting, you know, not being able to play consecutive pickleball games, or I'd cut the walk off halfway and avoid the hills and things like that. So when I went to my cardiologist and they proposed doing the calcium scoring, I said, you know what? I've heard about this calcium CT, or excuse me, the cardiac CT first pathway. And I'd really like to have that done if that's appropriate. And, you know, my cardiologist looked at what I had been telling him and said, yeah, I think that would probably be a good test for you. So we ended up doing that at a hospital uh, north of Atlanta. And I went in and I got my cardiac CT. And before that uh, happened, they ended up going ahead and performing my lab values. So this was my lab values that were done. 
And when you look at these lab values, I was on a statin really just for prevention, given the age and the benefits of being on a statin. And so when you look at these lab values, I'm really in the optimal ranges. So no, I, I was envious. I'm looking at these and uh, I'm a, I'm a 46 year old man and my value, and I take a statin as well. I take a Torvastatin. I don't know what you take, but uh, yeah, my, my values are not that good. So, yeah. So, you know, I, I thought that I was in pretty good shape as far as these lab values go, but then, you know, again, with that diminished exercise capacity and kind of shortness of breath on some of that stuff, I thought, well, this is just how you feel when you're old and you're out of shape. And I guess that's why I kind of had pigeonholed myself in. So we went ahead and the CT was performed. It got read uh, a couple of days later. Again, this was stable chest pain. There wasn't any issues that it had to be expedited. So the next one ends up being, let's see. So to explain for the for the the people that are listening auditory, one thing is this is a recorded visual. So we would like for you to go to the YouTube page. We'll also uh, have this on the uh, Hey Mou Frere podcast page where you actually see the slides and because he's got a lot of great visual tools when you mean you're stable you know a lot of people think of if you get a heart test or a test to see if you have blockages you have to have chest pain or left arm pain you aren't having any of that you're just short of breath yeah and then the other question i was going to ask you hat and and this may be something you don't want to have you ha- had you had covid before this no i had not had covid before that okay okay no, I had a little bit of, uh, of vertigo that I experienced at some point during that. It was a episode that kind of just passed and didn't attribute anything and nothing was ever found. I thought it might be the crystals in my ear, but it wasn't that. So really, I didn't have COVID. I didn't experience that. Okay. And the other thing that I'll say is risk factors on my side of the family are non-existent for coronary artery disease. My Grandfather lived to 101, my grandma to 97, my mom's still alive at 90 years old, living on her own and driving and, you know, taking care of herself. My father died of cancer seven years previous. And other than that, we really haven't had any coronary issues in our family at all. So I thought I was really, you know, good deal about 85 at least. Sure. So what the coronary CT does is if you've ever had any type of imaging of shoulders or knees or backs or anything, they lay you in a cardiac CT unit, and it's a tube, and then they introduce you in there slowly as they're taking the slices, if you will, of the images across your body. And they're able to piece those together in kind of a like a loaf of bread kind of configuration, and they can reconstruct the arteries and the anatomy precisely almost for like a 3D model of it. So that's what they did for me. And the you have three main vessels in your heart, the LAD, the circumflex artery, and the RCA. And some of us have an extra branch called the ramus. And I had one of those, about a third of the population does on your left system. So the first thing they saw, and this popped up in the mobile app that you see on your phone, you know, it's called my chart. And many of us as patients have this interface, if you will, with your healthcare provider. Mine popped up and lo and behold, I looked at the lab results of this test on my phone and I saw it had a 67% narrowing in the LAD. And I didn't expect that. You know, I would have thought maybe it'd be 20 to 30, just given my age and how this happens over time. But 67 was surprising to me. And then the Ramus Intermediate, had a 75% severe stenosis. And both of these were located proximal in the left system, which is a more risky location for this disease burden. You know, there was a little bit of other plaque accumulation in the other arteries, but nothing significant. One thing that did come out of this, Brian, was that they did a calcium score, which is what we would have done right off the bat. And my calcium score was 32. And what scares me about that is looking at calcium scores, as I have up on the screen now, my calcium score of 32 says that there's mild evidence of coronary artery disease. So, you know, very 
low risk of any heart attack in the coming years from a risk factor. So that would give you what you think is a clean bill of health to go forward and continue to do something, especially when you put the two pieces together, the lab values and the calcium score being this low. You say, well, you know, I, I got to get out of jail free card, so I'm good to go. I don't have to worry about anything. Well, that was not the case. So let's go back there. After they did the calcium CT, then they went ahead and did what is the product that I represent out into the community, and it's called uh, HeartFlow, and it's a FFRCT. And FFRCT stands for Fractional Flow Reserve, and the CT stands for Derived from a Computer Tomography Scan. And usually they have to take you to the cath lab and put a wire in your arteries to determine this value, but HeartFlow through the years has been validating against that and using AI, deep learning, as well as analysts to put a human element on it as well to confirm of being able to do this from a non-invasive test. So the goal is to, cardiac CT gives you very precise anatomy. Physiology matters. You do this test in the cath lab, determine if the blockage is functionally significant. And FFR is going to tell you if you have a reduced flow to that area of your heart, the percentage, if you will. So in my particular scenario, it's showing a 0.63. And that means if, you know, the baseline was one and I am at a 0.63, 37% diminished flow in that arterial bed. And the, the, the breaking, the value that says it's either significant or not significant is the 0.80. And so if you're below that value, there's justification to do an invasive cath and determine if a revascularization like a stent needs to actually be placed and use that scaffolding to restore blood flow to the artery. So for me, that's what it showed. And you're able to take this information and get knowledge before you take a patient to the cath lab, where many times it comes back and using other non-invasive tests that can be very erroneous in terms of the people that get there not having disease. No, no, I could see where where this technology prevents false negatives, false positives. It get, you know, the accuracy is 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 very high and again when you combine it with the CT with the calcium scoring, I can see where everything comes right. together and how long does the test take? The, te the the whole episode going to the CT scan facility, which is usually in a health park or an outpatient area of a hospital, is about a one-hour episode. The scan itself isn't even 15 minutes, but getting checked in, getting an IV started, and then getting put in the tube in position, you know, all that, I, I would say that's going to take one hour. Some facilities are very efficient and can do it in 30 minutes. So all depends on how many they do and how efficient they are. But you're effectively, you're getting an IV and they push contrast, I guess? They do. They push contrast and they also control your heart rate. So what they want to do is make sure that your heart rate is slowed down enough because your heart is a very active vessel bed and they just want to reduce it. So in a single beat of the heart, they can go ahead and get these images. So they usually give you a pill to take 12 hours before you go to the CAT scan and then one hour before. And for most people, that's enough to slow your heart rate, your resting heart rate down below 60, and then they're able to get really good images. Now, so so for me personally, I'm, I'm gonna dive kind of where, why this was so interesting to me. I'm 47, I've had COVID twice, and I've had shortness of breath for the last year. Matter of fact, my employees say something to me about it. My wife says something to me about it. I've seen a pulmonologist, I'm on a statin, I do have a history in my family. And so I've, I've been looking at what to get. And I don't, um, uh, as if anybody's listened to my previous podcast, I don't trust all sonographers. And, and I, I know that sounds horrible, but there's just, it's very hard to find out who's good at what. And so I've struggled at, you know, getting a stress test or getting a, uh, you know, who to trust down on, uh, on the South side where I'm at. And so this test 
to me is perfect. I think it would provide a lot of insights for me. And like you said, it's non-invasive. I've been in the hospital long enough. I've seen people get pseudoaneurysms. I've seen people get retroperitoneal bleeds. I've seen people get dissections from heart caths gone wrong. So I I love that this is something. And I I told you when we met briefly, I told you I'm getting one. I care if I have to pay out of pocket, I'm going to get one because I'm just at that. I've got enough to say it would be a good good thing to have. And if it comes back clean, I, I can feel good about it from because you're not only looking at just the anatomy, you're looking at the hemodynamics. And I think the hemodynamics is the game changer here, correct? Yeah, it is. You know, coronary CT is better. It gives you the anatomy. Physiology is important. And what we do at HeartFlow is bring that together. In order to have, you know, diagnostic accuracy, that's the picture you want. You need that complete picture. And I'll just share this for you at this point, Brian, because this is a study called the Pacific study that was done on 208 patients at a single center. And they compared all the testing modalities against each other. So every patient had every type of non-invasive test in addition to a heart cath over a period of two weeks. And then they compared the results to come up with which one has the greatest diagnostic accuracy. And it is the one that is essentially cardiac CT and FFR CT has a diagnostic, you know, an area under the curve of 0.94. So it is by far and away, you know, much better than the spec test or some of the other things that are being done. There's a place for all of those in precision heart care but is not to diagnose the presence of coronary artery disease and the severity of it. So we're able to do that there. Let me go back to where it went for me from this study. So I get this information and then I get this. So on the left is the specific image of the left anterior descending artery. And you could see it kind of looking ratty, Brian, in the proximal area of that LAD. And then in the next panel over with the image, you can see the ramus. And again, it is looking ratty as well. Now, distal to both of those, the vessels look good. They kind of, re, you know, they're, they're healthy there. That's what I expected to see, but didn't. And so now in terms of the next slide that I put up here, what this shows is this shows the coronary CT image on the left. And then on the right, it shows what they actually saw in the cath lab with the angiogram. And again, that is the gold standard, shooting dye into your coronary arteries. But again, you don't want to do it unnecessarily. And over 50% of the time, when people go to the cath lab, there's no obstructive disease. In my case, there was. And you can see how well those images line up to reflect the same information. Oh, yeah, they're beautiful. It it looks like mirrors. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? All right. And then this is the image that scared me. Again, the same arteries, but Brian, off of our left system, that left main, when it's called a widow maker, because when disease creeps into the left main and it is undiagnosed, people experience sudden cardiac death a high percentage of the time. And so it's known as the widow maker because that's what it does. And in this case, it was a very scary image for me because I can see that that disease is close to creeping into the left main. And if it was left undiagnosed, I might not be seeing my wife and children to the extent that I want to be in a within a very abrupt fashion. No, that's, that's uh, the images are very impressive. Yes, aren't they? Uh, and again, there's the, you know, FFRCT value saying, you know, 0.63, this is functionally significant and you should, you know, go to the cath lab to be evaluated. So the right patient at the right place at the right time. So I see, you know, just prior to that, you know, you see the 0.82 and you you said 0.80 was kind of the number. So that's kind of borderline too in the green area. And then that, that little blue area right before that, what is that? Is that, that blue? That is the, that's a, so we, these 
measurements are put in areas that have like a 30% stenosis or greater. Gotcha. And it's color coded. So, you know, again, it's the transitional gradient from one area of the artery to the other. And so that's why you see, if you will, it go from blue to green to red. You know, blue was okay. And you can kind of see in the angiogram on the right, it's not too bad right there. It's it's small, but there's good flow. And then as you get further in the artery, it's kind of impinged. Think of it as a highway that, you know, should have two lanes on it. And we're now down to one lane with the shoulders closed. Yep. No, I get it. Yep. Awesome. And then, and then this is what my angiogram looked like on the left is the pre. So you can see it isn't bad. I mean, I myself, you know, I was feeling, again, less than the, the best version of myself. But again, I didn't attribute it to anything other than age and being out of shape because I hadn't had COVID. But, you know, in hindsight, talking to people that had seen me, you know, I was helping a friend put in some landscape lights and bending over and, you know, working pretty hard in an afternoon heat. And they asked me, are you okay? And, you know, I thought, well, that's no big deal. It's just, you know, I didn't, I didn't appreciate what I didn't know. Sure. And so then this is the image on the right after they placed the stents in the two arteries. And you can see it's just a, a much brisker flow that brings blood supply to a lot more areas of my heart more quickly. Yeah, that's, there's a definitive and, difference. And the thing with this, Brian, this is why the recent guidelines were changed by the ACC and the AHA effective January 1st. They made coronary CT a 1A and the only 1A recommended guideline for suspected coronary artery disease. And it says in there that coronary CTA is effective for the diagnosis of coronary artery disease, risk stratification, and for guiding treatment decisions. Where stress testing is still in the guidelines, but it's a 1B recommendation, and, it, and, and it's important to understand that these, you have to have access and availability to these tests in your communities. And there's, you know, a, sh a shortage of these CT units available throughout the United States for every community. So that's why they don't, you know, just wipe those ones out and say you can't offer those. But what they do say is they say that stress testing is effective for the diagnosis of myocardial ischemia and estimating risk of major adverse coronary events. That's a lot different than the diagnosis of coronary artery disease that really is vessel specific. No, I agree. I think, you know, I've been in ultrasound and I had did some little bit of cardiac at the beginning. And what people don't realize is, you know, when you're looking at cardiac wall motion, uh, you know, changes and stuff like the heart attack, the heart attack has already occurred. You know, if they see the muscle not contracting, the right. damage has already been done. It's a little late for that. The other thing, and I'm going to tell a little story. So these CTs are these, these special CT units or are they, what's the, um, what's the like, they need, a, they need a cardiac package on them. Okay. And how many slices are most of these CTs? Most of them are probably 256 with dual source to acquire the images, but it can be done on a CT machine that's only a 64 slice. But most of the hospitals in the metro Atlanta area have upgraded their systems where they're no less than 128, and most of them are probably 256 at least. So I'm going to tell you a story, Tom. This is a horrible story. Okay, I worked <laughs> I worked at a multi-specialty clinic. And their CT machine was a four slice. This was in 2013. And people don't realize, and, and I, this is the part of the podcast where I get to say whatever the hell I want to say, because it's my podcast, is you don't realize, like, when you go somewhere to get a CT, they're not all equal. They're, they can be different levels. They can have different technology. Like Tom's saying, most of the major hospitals in Atlanta like Piedmont, downtown, Emory, downtown, Midtown, and Wellstar, and all the big ones usually have the top technology when it comes to these CTs. But when you get into rural communities, 
Uh, you may not. You may have a 16 slice or a 32 slice. Right. And the cost is the same. So I always tell people like sometimes it's worth the drive to get the steak at Bones. Yeah. <laughs> instead of going to Golden Corral, you know. Right. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Golden Corral is 10 minutes from the house, but there's a difference. And I think when you're talking about heart care, if you can go to a place that offers this type of technology and they have 250 slice and it costs you the same, it's worth the drive. Um, it is. And we, Brian, we couldn't even do it off of those machines because number one, their image acquisition wouldn't be strong enough to give us the resolutions we need. And they're just not going to be trained to do it. You need dedicated cardiac CT techs and nurses to control heart rate. And if you're not experienced doing that, you're going to do a poor job. And, you know, it's garbage in, garbage out. We, do, you know, we do quality studies to make sure that they're up to spec before we ever turn them on. They have to submit 10 studies. They have to pass our quality review because um, we don't want rejections. When someone goes through this process, we want them to get a, a valid study and information back that their cardiologist or other physician can act on to guide their management. Awesome. And I would say, you know, think about what imaging has done, Brian. And, you know, now we take for granted, and I'll just say, you know, when I think of mammograms that women go in and get routinely now to screen for breast cancer, there was a time when they were just told to look for lumps in the breast doing a self-inspection. And I think if you can feel a lump, you've probably missed the opportunity to treat it. It's gotten too far, too fast, and it didn't have to be that way if you had used the non-invasive test that could have found that lump or the nodule much earlier in the process. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for myself, well, the way I was looking at this is, you know, I'm going to go get one of these tests um, and I'm probably going to, I've already got like five family members, including my father, that I'm, I'm going to talk to him about it. Because I think, you know, if you have a his, uh, history and you've got some stable, but signs, I think getting, having one done, you, you know, you've, you've got like five to 10 years to almost like a colonoscopy. You can have one done. And if I decide to go back in five years and have another one, you know, even if I have to pay out of pocket, I, th I think we talked about it. The cost may be different at different centers out of pocket, but you know, you think, uh, say it's a couple thousand bucks. I mean, think about that a couple thousand bucks every five years to make sure you're, you don't that's have right. a devastating heart attack. That's a, that's the best investment you could you could probably have. I totally agree. And there is a warranty period. If you get a clean coronary CT scan, you know, you have an extended warranty period of, you know, probably eight years where, you know, you're not at risk. And, you know, certainly someone would explain that to you. And there's knowledge available out on the internet on that. But that's, I would, I expect it fully to go in and come out with an eight-year, you know, guarantee that I'm going to be okay and not to worry about it. And what actually happened, Brian, was this, this was a scary thing for me. I'm out there selling it. And this is a study that was done called Scott Hart. And what this looked at is if you did the coronary CT first pathway versus the standard care alone, which is going to be the, you know, stress test and spec test, nuclear test and other things, there's a 41% lower death rate in MI at five years, if you started with the coronary CT route. And for me, this was a slide that I didn't really know quite how to use in my presentations, but all of a sudden, I, I realized that if I had not been fortunate to advocate for this test for myself, that I could have had that 41% increased risk of heart attack or death over the next five years. And it didn't have to be that way. No, that's a large percentage. Yeah. And then here's another one that uh, I think is very important to share. And again, a slide that very busy if you don't understand it. Now that I've lived through it and I've become the poster child, it makes perfect sense. And what it shows, Brian, is it shows as a baseline, if you start with CT and then you add in the heart flow FFRCT study, that in two out of three patient management plans change because of this information. So for me, my 
cardiologist just based on coronary CT and before we had the functional assessment of FFR, I would have just been changed to a different statin and potentially maintained an optimal medical therapy. And because we did the FFR CT, you can see that number, that line with 43 on it, I was sent to the cath lab for a revascularization. And then for people that maybe had a coronary CT and it appeared like they had a 70% stenosis and they were going to go to the cath lab, but then you add in the heart flow FFR CT study, 211 of those patients were found not to be functionally significant in their stenosis, and they were able to just have medical therapy, optimal medical therapy. So it really helps get the right patient to the right place at the right time. And I had, Brian, as you said, as I've shared this with my friends and family and and the physicians I'm calling on uh, trying to promote this technology, every one of them is like you or I, they're like, I want one of these from myself. Everyone sees the validity and the benefits of this almost right away. They're like, of course I want this. Why would I not want this? Now, this is a test, not a screening. So, you know, you have to have a reason. Mine was shortness of breath. I mean, there's a lot of people that, you know, I would just say that I was probably guilty of being too macho and not really confessing, if you will, to my cardiologist, what I was really feeling and experiencing on a day-to-day basis. So if you don't give them that information when you see them, you know, in in me looking back, I'm like, why would I want to protect that and not share with the provider that's trying to help me what's really going on? But I think I was probably guilty of that. And I think a lot of men are in that same boat. It's crazy. Women too. I know it's crazy because we, I find it all the time in my practice. Like a lot of times they've seen the provider and our, when our providers spend like 45 minutes with them doing a very extensive. And then I'm with them for like an hour and 20 minutes doing a, a long lengthy ultrasound. And sometimes along there, they just become comfortable during that ultrasound. We're talking about kids and whatever. And then they'll tell me stuff that they did not tell the provider. And it's, I think people, they do, they almost feel like the doctor is going to judge them or they're going to say, hey, this patient's crazy or they're a hypochondriac. I do think there's some fear. And I found it myself. Like I went, I had shoulder surgery. And when I went there for the, it's like, I almost forgot everything I had. I'm getting old enough. I need to write everything down and have a list to go over with the doctor. But I do think you just, you forget and you get kind of scared or whatever. And it's very important to be honest and, and, and things that you don't think are important. That's another thing I hear. I like, we'll ask people if they have pain during intercourse and they'll say, a lot of times they'll say no. And then I'll see stuff. I'm like, I know you have pain during intercourse. They're, they're like, yeah, but I thought it was this and not vein related. It's like, we didn't ask you if you thought it was vein related. We just asked right. you, do you have this symptom? So. Yeah. Yep. All guilty of that. And, you know, one of the things I've heard that really made me be startled is that 50% of men and 70% of women experience sudden cardiac death. So the fact that we're not able to go out and diagnose the presence of coronary artery disease and the severity of it, you know, is what leads to that. The technology exists now. It's just really important for people to share with their internal medicine, their GP, their cardiologist, um, whoever might be able to allow them and be a gatekeeper to let them get this test if it's appropriate. You got to share that information with them, whether you're laying in your bed and, you know, you're on your side and you feel a dull pain in your chest that lasts for a period of time you know, yeah, we might recover from it, but those are the events that we're supposed to be sharing with our caregivers so that they can do what they do. As far as this technology, what percentage of cardiologists are, are most cardiologists aware of this technology or is there an information gap? There is an information gap. Again, these guidelines changed on January 1st and up to that point, a lot of people, you know, habits are char- hard to change in the healthcare community. It usually takes about seven years to get someone's behavior to change. And people that 
you know, aren't readers of coronary CTs, but can read nuclear studies or something or do stress tests are going to be more inclined to do those rather than refer it to a center or a colleague that can go ahead and do it. So and, that, that, that was my other question. Let's say, let's say I was a cardiologist or I had a cardiologist in my group and they said, you know what? I want to bring this in house. Can you do that private practice? Could you open up a center? What would be the, would the cost be exorbitant or? So these high-end scanners are about a million and a half dollars a piece. Okay. And you're going to have to have a build out of a facility to put them in. But we do have multiple programs, you know, up in the Northeast, in Chicago, down along the West Coast of Florida, where there's outpatient imaging centers that are offering this. And, you know, they just like they refer, you know, get a referral base where they're trying to get people to send them to the imaging center for MRIs or see abdominal CTs or head or anything. You know, this is one of the service lines they're offering now, and there's a big need for it out in the community. And the scheduling efficiency of those ones can be really good. Yeah, no, I can see the utility of it. I mean, I think we talked in Atlanta. I think there's three different locations you can go currently. Is that correct? Three? There's there's more than that. There's quite a few more. There's, you know, all the systems, be it Emory, Piedmont, Wellstar, Northeast Georgia, Northside, they're all able to offer this at some of their facilities and they're continuing to expand to try to get that to all as quickly as they can. Okay, perfect. Awesome. Yeah. Here's one. I just want to give you an example of the power of this and think about what this would mean in, you know, for any of us. And I have up on the screen right now a case study of an underdiagnosing disease And it shows an 87-year-old female that's had persistent chest pain. She's had repeated negative nuclear tests over 13 years. And on the screen, I show what those nuclear tests look like. And it shows that all of those are negative. Now, imagine if you were her children and mom continues to complain of chest pain and you continue to take her in to be evaluated on this. And they keep telling you that the test was negative. Therefore, she doesn't have coronary artery disease. And, you know, after a period of time, it's like it's all in your head. You're, you're, you're fine. But is she really? And this is what happened. She got to the proper person. They ended up ordering a coronary CT on her. You can see in that left panel, Brian, how ratty and oh, yeah. that artery is that she has. Then you can see in the middle how our FFRCT modeled that out. And she is at a 0.53. When you're down under 0.60, it is severely affecting your coronary artery flow. And so she immediately needed to go in and have an intervention. And you can see on the right, you know, what the prevalence of the disease was and where it was. Um, You know, it was diffuse right at at that branch Mm. of the LAD. So, in fact, 13 years of going for those other tests, showing that they were negative and there's no disease, you do the right test and is now the 1A standard from the AC, the American College of Cardiology and the American Hospital Association. You find the disease, are able to diagnose the severity of it right away, and your mom gets relief and people are no longer saying that, you know, it's all in her head. So... Wow, that's crazy. I, I can also, I imagine over those 13 years, she probably modified her behavior significantly to not cause any exertion. I would I totally agree with you. I mean, she's and, 87 now. She's been doing this since her early 70s. And, um, you know, I imagine they're all thinking she's very fragile. And from what it looks like here, you know, once they truly do what they can do to improve that flow, she's probably going to feel a lot better and and could have a decade earlier, potentially, you know, had this technology been widely adopted and utilized. But in, in fairness, we needed the opportunity as technology has come along, we need a higher quality of scans. We've needed more time to increase our algorithm and the processing power we have to compute these computational flow dynamics that occur in this. 
And as I heard the other day, I was watching a movie and they were talking about the Apollo mission. And one of the people that was associated with it said, you know, it's interesting, the computers that were aboard the Apollo space capsule at the time, we actually have that much computing power right now in the fobs of the keys for our car. That's crazy. That's Yeah, so that was, <laughs> that was just amazing to think. I mean, it takes a lot of computational power for this. And I think everyone can appreciate in the last decade, it's really come a long way. But I will share this with you, and I think it's important is, as this volume of these things ramp up and you need these read more quickly, the ability of machine learning and artificial intelligence to look at this stuff and help make decisions, it's what we're trying to do is close the gap between the, the most novice readers and the most sophisticated. And we want to make sure that, you know, maybe we can get 85% agreement right off the bat from the machine learning on these rather than have any variance coming out of what people see. And the machine learning could certainly make people do this easier and have more agreement uh, at the top end of the people reading these. So that, that was my next question. So if I, when I go, because I'm going, and I get this test done, I get the CT done at the facility, whichever facility, and then they send it off to you guys, correct? Up yes, to the cloud. it pushes out of their DICOM system, which is attached to their CT, and then it is sent off to us. And, okay. and then at who, that point, who's, we, who's reading it on the year end? Is it a... We, we have uh, analysts that are trained to do this, that okay. read, you know, in a dark room, all they do is sit with big screens and look at the images uh, after it's been put through the AI and the machine learning to make sure that they're in agreement with what the final output of the machine is before it's sent off. Okay. Is there a separate charge for that analysis or is it in? No, that's, well, we our, our analysis, yes, we charge for that, but all, all phases and parts of what we do once it's sent off to us are, are one price. Gotcha. Okay. Awesome. So, yeah, I just trying to, I wanted people to understand that there's kind of, that there is, I do think people are scared, especially older people are scared of technology, even though we all use it to back out of our driveway now. I Matter of fact, the other day I had a car in Europe and it didn't have a backup camera and I didn't know what to, I had not backed up without a backup camera in like 10 years. Right. But no, I think it's nice to know that you also have experts reviewing the computerized because computers can make mistakes, but they can, you've basically got a two factor system here. You've got a computer AI model, which is going to be very accurate and learn. And then also you've got the human element also looking over it. So that's, that's, that's interesting. Yep. That's right. And then we push that out into uh, the PDF, as I shared with you before, I'm going to go back to this. This is what actually gets sent back to the account is this information right here. And it is put in usually the PAC system, more so than the EMR, but they can pull this up either on their phone. We have a mobile app. So, you know, a physician standing, you know, on a golf course that had a patient he was concerned about potentially could look this up or, you know, he or she, anywhere that it's convenient for them to access this information uh, should they choose and need to. That's awesome. Do you, can you have one of these after you've had a stent? That's the other question I was going to ask. Well, no, you cannot. We are not uh, FDA approved for that. So um, this is, if you've had a metal stent placed, let's say in a right coronary artery, we could do it on your left system, but we could not do it on the right. We're not qualified for that at this point, and we're not qualified for bypass grafts that have occurred or anomalies, you know, so there's a list of off-label things, if you will, that we can't process. But keep in mind, we're being used to diagnose the presence of coronary artery disease and the severity. So someone that already had a stent would already have known coronary artery disease and would have been through the cath lab to have that stent placed and already have images of their other arterial beds. Gotcha. Okay. 
but that is something we come in the future. I'm sure and the, the customers would like to have, but at this point in time, we're just trying to get them to adopt and utilize this as a frontline strategy. I understand. No, I'm just thinking in the future. I, I, I could see the utility of in the future because again, non-invasive, you know, versus having to go through a cath lab every five years or, you know, that's awesome. So Brian, here's a slide that's particularly interesting. If you look at the other non-invasive functional testing that is priorly is done prior to angiography and you look at this 45% of the time there's obstructive disease that's picked up on spec the other 55% of the time there's no obstructive coronary artery disease so think about that 55% of the patients that spec is picking up and sending to the cath lab have no obstructive disease and don't need to be there no, and 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 I think people need to know. I mean, I think that's the biggest for me. The biggest thing is the the how accurate this test is, because nobody wants to go through cath, heart cath, unnecessarily. I know in my practice, when I send people to get IVUS, if we do a, our duplex imaging, uh, is about ninety one percent accurate, and I still get upset when that one out of ten or comes back and it's not because I, they look at it differently. They look at you like, well, I went through all that and I spent this money. Plus I had the procedure and it was unneat, unnecessary. Right. So you consider half of your patients that are going through spec. What's the accuracy of the CT with the FFRCT? So that area under the curve that I shared with you, if you look at these in terms of accuracy, we're at the top with a area under the curve of 0.94, and you can just go down. You know, this was the PET area under the curve was the next best, and this was 0.87. Uh, CT alone without FFR CT is at 0.83, and then you know, SPECT itself is at 0 0.70. Gotcha. So you can okay. So just walk right up the line there and you can see why the guidelines are what they are and why they want you to use not only the CT for the sensitivity around the anatomy, but then they want you to use uh, FFR CT to get the physiology and find out before we send people to cath lab, is it really functionally significant? Yeah. I think one of the other things we talked about right now, there's a, there's a shortage of cath lab technology in in the hospital. There's actually multiple hospitals in Atlanta that have had to shut down their cath labs because yep. they don't have staffing. So I think, you know, this is a non-invasive test that's, and cost-wise, I think having a heart cath is a lot more expensive than this test, correct? Dramatically so, yeah. There's one of the presentations, you know, put a number on that at $12,000 to send somebody to the cath lab. This is, you know, and uh, do you have a fraction cost? of that? A very any, small fraction. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any costs like for Medicare? Because uh, a lot of patients with, you know, I'd say we're over the age of 65. This would be, is there? Yeah. I think, you know, again, it's all starting with the cardiac CT. The numbers that I've heard for a patient cost for a Medicare patient is probably around $375 for a cardiac CT. And then, Based on what they read on that, Brian, the new guidelines say that if you have a 40 to 90% stenosis, then it is appropriate to send that patient for FFRCT to determine if it's functionally significant, the physiology component, if you will. Okay. All right. But if you came back again and you're clean, you know, then it would not be sent for that next level of evaluation. It wouldn't be necessary. Gotcha. Now, if I go pay private, They'll do both, correct? No. Yeah, but you, you yeah. would still want to start again. You With want them to use those guidelines. Okay. But if you went in and you were only at 30%, Brian, there'd be no reason to incur the expense for the FFRCT. Okay. But if there was, you know, a 50%, yes, you'd want to have it done. I would. Yeah. And I yeah. felt, Brian, when I had this done and this was revealed for me that there was the presence of coronary artery disease and it was severe, I felt like I want to scratch off lotto ticket. There was no apprehension in going to the cath lab. You know, my wife was kidding me. She's like, only you. She said, 
you go in for your cardiac CT scan. They find this. You go in and have your procedure. You're in and out of the hospital in three hours with stents put in your heart to restore your blood flow. And it's like, it's no big deal. It's like you went out for dinner and I'm stuck with, you know, these other chronic issues that I have to live with forever. And you're like, nothing. Did you, did you uh, experience a, a difference in your level of shortness of breath and all that? Did it resolve? I did. I did. What I find now is when, and my daughters and sons and uh, son-in-law, when we're playing these things, like now they're like, dad, you have so much more stamina when we're playing pickleball. Like I can play multiple games now where before I'd have to say, you know, you guys play, I'm going to sit down and rest. And I also find that when I do the walks that I was doing, um, when I come up the challenging hills, my heart rate doesn't get as high and it recovers much more quickly. So, and that's all off my Apple watch. So I'm able to see all that in real time while I'm doing it. No, that's amazing. That's awesome. You're very fortunate. I guess you're fortunate. You, you, I mean, you, did you know about this technology before you started working with HeartFlow? I did not No, it opened my eyes and that is totally the reason I became educated on the subject matter and asked my cardiologist, you know, if it would be appropriate test, uh, given, you know, what I was feeling for symptoms. All right. Awesome. Uh, anything in closing you want to uh, share with the audience, uh, maybe a website, anything that might help them either follow you or find out more information about uh, FFRCT? Yeah, just go to heartflow.com and all the information you would like to know will be there. And there's also a HeartFlow finder. So you can put in your zip code and it will show the institutions closest to you offering uh, this technology and where you can access it. Listen, Tom, uh, Tom I am um, very fortunate to have met you. I actually, uh, when I was, I was introduced to you by an associate that I knew. And the first thing I said is I'm, I'm, I'm down because I need this myself. I really was searching two weeks ago for an executive health plan. I wanted to go through and get my heart checked because my, again, my family has been kind of after me and, and probably people can even tell I'm a little short of breath now. Hey, I just have been dealing with it and I've had pulmonary clearance. So I'm going to get this done in the next week or two uh, and I'm going to let everybody know my results, but I really appreciate you sharing your expertise with my audience. And again, if you want to find out more about Tom, you'll find his information on the Hey Boo Fair podcast. And uh, again, listen, people, if you want to get updated on new episodes, I'd love for you to uh, subscribe. A lot of work goes into this that nobody listens to. I'm just joking. But uh, uh, sometimes I, I had somebody the other day, he said, I, di- I didn't know you had all these episodes. And I'm like, well, you have to subscribe. You'll get an email in the morning and letting you know. And some are you may not be interested in, but others like this. I think this this is such a broad subject. It affects so many people's loved ones that this is invaluable information. Tom, I think today's episode is going to save somebody's life in the next month or two. So I appreciate your time and uh, best of luck to you. Thanks, Brian. I look forward to following up with you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Hey Boo Frere podcast. For the show notes, transcripts, and downloads of the things that we've covered, visit heymoofrerepodcast.com.